Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Today on the show, we're going to tell you the story of a black man whose killing more than 80 years ago raises disturbing questions about the Atlanta Police Department. But with the spread of the new coronavirus at the top of everyone's minds, we're devoting the first part of our hour to delving into that. By now, this probably sounds familiar. Infected people got a respiratory illness. Public health agencies have issued travel advisories. Experts agree unless it is quickly controlled, it could lead to a severe pandemic, an outbreak that circles the globe and affects people everywhere. News clips covering the global coronavirus outbreak, right? Wrong. These are actors playing newscasters in a high-level pandemic practice scenario that's eerily close to what we're seeing now. The global economy was in a free fall. The GDP down 11 percent. The drill happened last October, two months before Chinese health officials went public with the discovery of the highly contagious illness we now call COVID-19. A top U.S. public health officer was there with international health officials, academics, and business leaders. They gathered in New York City to imagine a new coronavirus spreading uncontrollably around the globe. The point was to drive home the need to be prepared. And today, well, as they say, this is not a drill. These news reports are real. Well, China is reporting the first death from a mysterious outbreak in Wuhan province. The pandemic spreads through Italy, Iran, and South Korea. The CDC confirming the second case of the virus here in the United States. A public health emergency of international Yesterday, concern. Pence acknowledged what is now Over obvious. We don't have enough tests Nowadays, today. Nowadays, the U.S. now uh, has its first death related to coronavirus. States, a person in California has tested positive for the virus. Let's freeze right there. The virus is still spreading, but today we're teaming up with KQED in San Francisco and CAP Radio in Sacramento to stop and look at what went right and what went wrong in the first weeks after the novel coronavirus arrived in California. Reporter Leslie McClurg of KQED takes it from here. Just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco is Marin County, where Dr. Matt Willis is in charge of public health. So, of course, he paid attention when he heard reports of a new virus in China. It was the first week of, of 2020 where um, somewhat alarming reports of rapid increases in cases. It was clear that this virus had the characteristics for, for global spread. 
Soon, the U.S. had its first case. Tonight, the CDC says the infected passenger passed through busy SeaTac Airport in Seattle. The new virus seemed to hit older adults hardest. About a third of the people living in Marin County are over 60. So Willis went on alert. Yeah, I mean, the first step I took was just moving my office down to where my communicable disease team works, kind of knowing that we were going to be working together pretty hard for weeks or months on this. On the last day of January, U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar declared a public health emergency. Beginning at 5 p.m. Sunday, February the 2nd, the United States government will implement temporary measures to detect and contain the coronavirus. The federal government evacuated a couple plane loads of Americans from a cruise ship in Japan and put them in quarantine. Over 100 ended up at Travis Air Force Base, about an hour east of San Francisco. U.S. airports began screening passengers. Travel, especially to China, slowed way down. With the State Department issuing a level four do not travel advisory for all of China, American Airlines, United and Delta are suspending operations there. But many people had already flown to California from China before word of the virus was widespread. The Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention told Willis and other public health officials to use airline passenger lists to start tracking people returning to their communities. And that was initially, you know, anyone who had returned from China, we needed to monitor for at least two weeks for the development of symptoms. At this point, the only confirmed cases of COVID-19 could be traced back either to recent travel or direct contact with an infected person. The CDC's testing guidelines reflected that. If you didn't meet those two criteria, you weren't going to be tested, even if you were showing symptoms. For people who were eligible, Willis's staff could do a test, send it to CDC headquarters in Atlanta, and wait for results. But there weren't nearly enough tests, even to cover the CDC's directive. So we were applying a more stringent criteria here in Marin County to really limit the tests for those who needed it most. Willis suspected more infections were on the way. You know, this is what it looks like when an epidemic spreads. It is first brought in from identifiable sources on the outside, and then once it establishes a foothold, it starts becoming exchange between people within the community. Um, and so we're just, you know, at that point, we were waiting to see when that would occur. And then it did. On February 26th, a hospital in Sacramento, about two hours east, announced it was treating a woman sick with the virus who hadn't traveled anywhere or been exposed to anyone infected. Which was a sign to us that we're starting to see community transmission in our region. This was a turning point, the first case of community transmission in the country. It had taken two hospitals more than a week to confirm her illness, partly because she wasn't eligible for testing. Finally, a few days later, the CDC expanded their criteria. Then on March 4th, a man in California died of complications from COVID-19. He'd been on a cruise to Mexico. The governor declared... A state of emergency in the state of California. And the next morning, Sandy Adler-Killen went to work. She's a nurse at a Bay Area hospital. Her first patient that morning, a 92-year-old man with a fever struggling to breathe. A potential case of COVID-19. Honestly, I was really surprised. Surprised because she didn't feel prepared to care for a potential coronavirus patient. She says she and her colleagues that morning hadn't had any training yet. With the coronavirus, uh, they really just reviewed a few things in huddle for a few minutes and they asked us to watch a video. The emergency room buzzed with confusion. They decided to test him. A doctor handed Sandy a few test tubes and a handful of paperwork to fill out. 
No one knew how to get the samples to the county lab. We ended up not knowing exactly how to handle that. Did, were we supposed to call the courier? Um, how were these samples supposed to be handled? Sandy continued to work, not knowing for several days whether she'd been exposed to the virus. A few days later, she found out, luckily, no. But with more suspected cases showing up in the region, workers in some hospitals were sent home to self-quarantine. Testing was too slow to figure out who was actually infected. The testing has been such a debacle, and it feels like such an unnecessary debacle. Dr. Seema Yasmin is a public health specialist and epidemiologist at Stanford University, a so-called disease detective. I've investigated outbreaks of flesh-eating bacteria, of botulinum toxin, of whooping cough, measles, mumps, all of that regular stuff as well. She's been watching coronavirus management at the national level. It was really unfortunate, she says, that in early February, just as the outbreak has started to spread beyond China, the CDC released faulty test kits. So you think, okay, well, you were making it in a rush. These things happen. That's fine. But we need to quickly iterate. But the agency lagged in sending improved tests out to local public health departments. And scientists outside the government had a lot of trouble getting authorization to develop their own tests. Another issue is that by the time that CDC was sending out its testing kits to some labs across the state, the World Health Organization had sent out tests to dozens of countries who by that point had done hundreds and thousands of tests. Dr. Stephen Redd from the CDC publicly defended the U.S. approach. There's a process of developing uh, tests when there's a new disease. We followed that procedure. Uh, there wasn't a need to follow the WHO test. Some countries developed their own tests. By mid-March, South Korea had done more than 200,000 of them. By the CDC's count, only about 11,000 tests had been done here by that same time. But some question that number because tracking has been problematic. Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC, testified in early March that funding is part of the problem. Like CDC, the state and local and territory health departments are underfunded. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a data system that every health department in this country right now could see in real time so that we could predict what's going on and where to go and where to put assets? We don't have that. Dr. Yasmin says communication and transparency have been problems from the top down. The White House resisted releasing several advisories from the State Department and CDC, like warning Americans against getting on cruise ships. And in early March, an online tracker of testing numbers unexpectedly vanished. So think about all those concerns we had about Chinese officials withholding data. Well, magically, data disappeared from the CDC's website. For people who get mildly ill from the virus or who have good health care, the lack of tests and information might all add up to just a hassle. But each misstep, Dr. Yasmin says, puts vulnerable people at higher risk. About 28 million Americans are uninsured, and another 44 million are underinsured. This is a story of health inequity, unequal access to health care, and about rich people having the means, the resources, the time, the networks to protect themselves while the homeless the incarcerated, people living on the margins of society, those are the people I worry about the most. A virus moving around uncontrolled in the community is dangerous for everyone. And with the lack of widespread rapid testing, there was no way to know how many people were infected. Health officials realized they couldn't stop the spread of the virus. So some local governments switched strategies. They moved from trying to contain it to trying to slow it down. Several counties, like Sacramento, which had the nation's first case of community transmission, called off the automatic quarantines for possible exposure. 
Sacramento County's top public health official, Peter Bielinson, held a press conference. There's no point in quarantining for 14 days a person who's feeling healthy, right? If they feel sick, then they should stay home. Theoretically, this should help ease the burden on the healthcare system. If doctors and nurses can keep going to work despite possible exposure, then those who are sick can get the care they need. This policy shift was also supposed to make it easier to get tested, but there still weren't enough kits. Yes, it takes a long time because we didn't get the test from the CDC until a couple weeks ago. We only have 20 tests that we can do in a given day. Marvin and Ellen Schwartz would love one of those precious tests. The senior couple were on the cruise ship that was held off the coast of San Francisco recently. I guess about the early part of the second week, we started hearing rumors that there were some concern. U.S. officials flew tests out to the ship as it waited to dock, but they only tested 45 people out of several thousand. Many of them are now quarantined at a simple hotel, again on Travis Air Force Base. On his first day there, Marvin watched out the window as more cruise ship passengers arrived. Now I see that coming off the bus, they're bringing someone in a wheelchair. I, you know, this kind of cruise attracts older people. Neither Marvin nor Ellen are showing symptoms, but still, they have no idea if they've caught the coronavirus. Ellen really wants to be tested. I mean, even the, the people who are the hazmat people do, and, and took our temperatures do not know whether we will have the option of being tested. Officials say tests are coming, but it's not clear when. For now, Ellen has a half-read novel, the TV, and Marvin to keep her entertained until the government tells her she can go home. That's KQED's Leslie McClurg. Thanks also to reporter Nicole Nixon from CAP Radio for bringing us this story. Testing is becoming more available by the day, but experts say the U.S. is still lagging far behind where it needs to be. One of the reasons the cruise ship passengers are being quarantined is because there's no vaccine to protect the rest of us from coronavirus. Scientists across the world are rushing to create a vaccine, including Maria Elena Batazzi. She's a professor and co-director for the Center for Vaccine Development at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Maria Elena, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me on your show. So what have the past few weeks been like for you? So the past few weeks have been, uh, at the same time, uh, quite frustrating and exciting because we uh, do know that we possibly could have a, a vaccine that could prevent cases of uh, coronavirus. The vaccine that Maria Elena is so excited about is one her team developed to protect against an earlier outbreak of another coronavirus called SARS-1. She's frustrated because she didn't get to finish the project. That's because after spending millions of dollars to support this research, the National Institutes of Health pulled the plug. This was in 2016. Maria Elena's team tried to get funding from other agencies and private investors, but no one was interested. By then, the SARS-1 outbreak had been over for more than a decade. So I think the priorities shifted with the area of the funders and the uh, priorities shifted with the attention, even, to be honest, the public attention. Let me uh, go back to the science a little bit. Can you explain the similarity in the two viruses, the SARS and the corona? 
So the similarity between SARS-1 and coronavirus comes from its genetic code. So they are, you know, genetically, if you look at their amino acid or DNA sequence, you know, they're very similar. In fact, when you then look at the mechanisms that these viruses use to infect your cells, we know that these two viruses use the same receptor, the same mechanism to infect the human cells, especially the cells in your lungs. And if you had already developed a vaccine that specifically blocks that ability of the virus to enter the cells, we could potentially repurpose and um, maybe looking at how it would protect against the COVID-19. What was it like for you in 2016 when no one would fund your project? So again, go, I go back to, uh, you know, a little bit of a level of frustration. I mean, we certainly are a small group. We're a very passionate group that tries to develop vaccines that, you know, especially are for not only impoverished populations, but that, you know, would address very important and timely uh, health issues. So we were disappointed. You know, the agencies certainly um, had other problems that were occurring in the world, you know, as, you know, I can relate to the the Ebola experience. Um, But, you know, that certainly is not ultimately an excuse, right? I mean, we can just put things on hold while other things pop up. I mean, we're playing a -a whack-a-mole game here, as you know, right? We have to do things in parallel because as one thing is being resolved and attended to, other things are also arising. If you had gotten more funding in 2016... Would your vaccine be saving lives now? The answer would probably be yes. If we would have done four years ago what we are attempting to start doing today, we would be four years ahead of the game and we would at least know it would not be useful or yes, it would be useful rather than now asking that question without having the ability of moving it uh, very quickly. Does it make sense to continue to develop a vaccine that's not a perfect match? I strongly believe that we should evaluate everything that we have, especially those that are even for other types of SARS. And the reason why I say this is because what it's very important for us is reduce deaths, reduce severity. So probably our vaccine could do that, even though it may not be a perfect fit. Most importantly, knowing that there is going to be a huge likelihood that we're going to have another coronavirus in the future, I think that the need to look at everything that we have and not just say, well, you know, this one was for an old virus, is not going to apply for the new virus, is absolutely a mistake. Have you gotten funding to further your work on the original vaccine? So we are still uh, trying to get some funding to move our vaccine out of the freezer and move it into uh, safety testing in humans. The NIH is going to give us some funds to see if we can also start activities to develop a a very specific COVID-19 vaccine. So that is, of course, great. But we still haven't been able to mobilize the vaccine that we have in the freezer. And last question for you. So the World Health Organization has now come out and said that the coronavirus outbreak is a pandemic. What does that actually mean for people who don't follow this type of stuff? Well, I think that first and foremost, we have to not enter into a uh, crisis mode. You know, the population should 
keep uh, uh, common sense. I think we all have to understand that now it's at a different level. We certainly would like to continue our daily lives with as minimal interruptions as possible. But more specifically, I think maybe you and I, you know, we are healthy, maybe we are young, but we have to remember that the people who are really being highly affected are, you know, people who are older, you know, that maybe they're even confined in nursing homes and that it's the fact that we ourselves, knowing that we may not be able to go see our families, like for example, my father is in Honduras and I know the stress that this will bring to the Honduran health system. And of course, the worst that I can do is me travel, going to see my dad as much as I wish I could be with him because he's an 87-year-old man that I don't know if I'm asymptomatic or eventually I'm going to transmit it to him. So we need to be cognizant of the decisions we make. We have to wash our hands absolutely constantly, you know, bump your elbows, don't kiss everybody on the streets, right? Uh, And I know it's going to be hard, but if we all join forces, we are all a big, huge community in the world, and I think we're going to get over this. Maria Elena Batazzi is the co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Baylor College of Medicine. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to your radio listeners. Are you a health professional with information on the fight against the coronavirus? We want to hear from you. Get in touch by going to revealnews.org tips. That's revealnews.org tips. When we return, we look back at a painful chapter in America's history, the lynching of African Americans, and the efforts to come to terms with that legacy. You're listening to Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Alet. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, is dedicated to the victims of white supremacy in America, and in particular, the thousands of Black people who were lynched. I went there recently and... I just don't have the words for how much it moved me. It's a striking open-air pavilion with hundreds of suspended steel columns engraved with thousands of names. 
the opening of the memorial and a nearby museum in 2018 drew big crowds and worldwide attention. The Legacy Museum and Memorial provides a mirror to face some of the ugliness in this country's past. For there's no way we can heal until we first acknowledge and address our wounds. Dealing with our wounds is what this memorial sets out to do. Reporter Stephanie Stokes came here a few months after the memorial opened. It's an emotional experience. It's pretty overwhelming. You pass through all of these columns with the names of victims of lynching, and you you grasp the immensity of this part of our, our country's history. Stephanie reports on inequality and racial discrimination for public radio station WABE in Atlanta. She originally brought us this story back in the fall when she found the names of lynching victims from Atlanta. Some of the information was pretty familiar to her. And it's important to note that a lynching isn't always a hanging. It's any killing where a mob takes the law into its own hands. There are a bunch of names that all correspond to this one event that took place in 1906. They call it the Atlanta Race Riot. But really, it was a white mob that killed 25 black people. But after that, I actually see a name I had never heard of before. It said Thomas Finch and then the date, 1936. And I look around at the memorial and there's no information. Why no information on Thomas? The group behind the memorial, the Equal Justice Initiative, they did a bunch of research to figure out which names belonged at the memorial. But they haven't made that research public yet. I do know there are a few different lynching databases created decades ago that the memorial used. But, you know, in general, you have to understand these cases did take place quite a long time ago. So Stephanie dug into the newspaper archives. She found a brief story in the Atlanta Constitution, which catered to a white audience in the 1930s. It says that he was accused of rape by a white woman and police picked him up. He tried to escape and... He reached for an officer's gun, and that officer fired three times. That is a story that I've heard so many times, both historically but also in modern-day America. A a suspect reaches for an officer's gun, and then the officer ends up shooting the suspect. Yeah, that's why I wanted to find more information. And I did, um, in black newspapers from the time. Their stories actually questioned the police narrative. Then I find this unpublished investigation in a local archive here. It said that Thomas Finch was lynched by the Atlanta police. So even though this story happened in the 30s, it feels really relevant to today. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer in understanding what happened in the past so that we can navigate the present, the future. So you going back looking into the past, how do you do that? I didn't just want to find the details of what took place. I wanted to find the people who are around now, the descendants of those involved. And the first person I reach is Thomas Finch's niece, and her name is Joyce Finch Morris. Hi, Stephanie. My name is Joyce Finch Morris, and I am returning your call. This is related to my uncle, Thomas Finch. Joyce doesn't sound surprised to hear from me. A student at Northeastern University had contacted her about Thomas Finch's case the year before. We set up a time to go over the research I've gathered. She lives in her childhood home in Atlanta's Grove Park neighborhood. It's an old stone schoolhouse. Hi, how are you? Good, are you Joyce? Yes, I am. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come on. The walls inside are decorated with paintings she's collected over the years. 
mostly by African-American artists, and mementos from her travels around the world. Joyce is dressed carefully. She's formal, a little subdued, but she doesn't hesitate to answer any questions about her life or her family, although she says there's a lot she doesn't know. She tells me she moved back to Atlanta only a few years ago. Do you like Atlanta? Not really. <laughs> um, I, I left Atlanta because I really did not like it. Uh, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and when I would go to other places, when I would go to D.C. or go to New York or L.A., I didn't see some of the restrictions that I experienced here. Restrictions like having to use the back door at the movie theater. Joyce's family was part of the city's black middle class, but the realities of segregation were still there. And she says in places like New York, she just thought there was more culture. Uh, the theater, the museums. What I wanted out of New York, Atlanta just didn't have. She moved to New York in her 20s and started a career in finance and community development. She ended up away from Atlanta for 50 years. Today, Joyce regrets she never got around to asking her parents for more of their history. She remembers when she was young, she tried to learn about her dad's brother, Thomas. He died more than a decade before she was born. But it was not something that was discussed. And I, like I said, I could understand. Um, too painful, perhaps. Her mom was the only one who talked about her uncle's death. My mother said that he um, was lynched because he was dating someone white. But that's all I knew. I didn't know any details about how and who did it. I open up my laptop on her dining room table, and I realize I have more information about this part of the family's history than Joyce. We start scrolling through the documents. Now, what year was this? You know? 1936. Oh, my goodness. We look at the report I found by a civil rights group called the Commission on Interracial Cooperation. The commission's work isn't widely known today, but in the early part of the 20th century, it fought against lynching, along with groups like the NAACP, although the commission's leaders were mainly white. Can you make it just a little larger? Yeah. The report says Thomas Finch was an orderly at Grady, Atlanta's oldest public hospital. One day, a white patient named Ozella Smith accused him of taking her into a closet and raping her. Thomas's white coworkers didn't believe the assault could have happened. For one, the closet where it allegedly took place was an earshot of doctors' offices. A small closet. According to the commission, this is what happened next. Two Atlanta police officers came to the hospital to find out where Thomas lived. But they didn't go to his home right away. They waited hours until three in the morning. When they showed up, they weren't alone. The Finch family noticed several other people, it's not clear who, standing behind the two officers. Oh my goodness. They arrested Thomas, but never took him to the police station. Instead, about an hour later, they brought him to Grady Hospital. He had been beaten and shot. I show Joyce her uncle's death certificate. So you can see the cause of death here. Gunshot wounds of the neck, chest, and abdomen. He was 27. Yeah. Wow. The commission's report concludes that Thomas Finch was wrongfully accused of rape and then lynched. But there's another important detail. I show Joyce a newspaper story from more than a decade after Thomas's death. It's about the Atlanta police officer who shot him, claiming it was in self-defense. His name, Samuel Roper. This is in 1949. Oh, he was a cake. He was a Klansman. 
The article says Roper became the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, so I guess that shouldn't surprise anybody. Joyce seems calm, but I see her scrunching her eyebrows at times, trying to make sense of all this. Then her thoughts shift to the present. The question is, where can this all lead? I mean, uh, could he be exonerated after the fact? I have no idea. Like as a family member, is that something that you would want? If he was innocent, of course, yes. This is a new question that I hadn't thought of. What would it take to set the record straight in a case that happened 80 years ago? I tell Joyce I'll let her know if I uncover anything more. I go back into the city records. I check notes from the police committee from the week he died. Board minutes from Grady Hospital. Nothing about Thomas Finch or the commission's investigation into his death. It doesn't seem like the report was even made public. One of the only experts I reach who has any record of Thomas Finch is E.M. Beck. Uh, Great. Well, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Okay. I am E.M. Beck, professor emeritus of sociology and a Josiah Meggs distinguished uh, teaching professor emeritus at the University of Georgia. He spent the last few decades developing a lynching database. I asked him why the city never followed up on the commission's findings. I know most rural lynchings never got a thorough review, but I also thought, you know, this is Atlanta. This is the city of Atlanta. Couldn't something happen there that might not be able to happen elsewhere in the South? Well, I mean, you think about it this way. It's all white power structure. And so you've got to ask, what is it in their interest to try to pursue these things, and especially if it involves the police. And I would say that they have no interest in it. The police involvement apparently made the NAACP uneasy, too. In a letter, the group's director, Walter White, didn't want to call Thomas's case a lynching, at least at first. Professor Beck says the history of police and lynchings is murky. He can think of maybe 30 cases like Thomas's. There could be more. The problem is, the only written records are the officers' own reports. I mean, the one thing that we know, at least after the revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1915, is that one of the things that the Klan did was try to recruit policemen. Policemen like Samuel Roper. I learned he wasn't the only Atlanta officer loyal to the Klan in the 1930s. This tape is from an oral history interview with former Atlanta Police Chief Herbert Jenkins. Well, I almost say that most of the members at one time, most of the members of the police department were members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, the Atlanta Police Department was full of Klan members in the 1930s. It gets me thinking about other police shootings from the time, like the officer who was with Roper the night Thomas died. I see that he killed at least five black men in his career. In one case, he used a machine gun. But so many years later, there's no evidence to prove these were anything other than officer-involved shootings. That's what makes Thomas Finch's case stand out, as Professor Beck says. I think the case there of Thomas Finch, it becomes, uh, especially with the uh, report done by the uh, CIC, the Commission on Interracial Cooperation, in fact, suggests that, uh, you know, yeah, he, was, he would fall under the definition of what a, a lynching would be. The commission's investigation into Thomas's death is the most reliable information I may ever have. But my reporting isn't done. There were two other people directly connected to this case. And I want to talk to their families. 
The first person Stephanie tracks down is the relative of Samuel Roper, the man who killed Thomas Finch. If we go far enough back, we all have ancestors that did things good and bad. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We're looking at the killing of a black man named Thomas Finch that happened in Atlanta in 1936. Police claimed they acted in self-defense, but a local civil rights group determined he was lynched. Reporter Stephanie Stokes picks up the story of the officer who shot Finch. It isn't that hard to trace the life and career of Samuel Roper. He served in the Atlanta Police Department, then moved up the ladder, way up the ladder, to lead the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, making him the state's top law enforcement officer. After that, in the late 1940s, he took over the national leadership of the Ku Klux Klan. I look up Roper's obituary, and from there, I'm able to find his grandson, Kent Giles. We talk a few times. He's never heard of Thomas Finch, and he's reluctant to do an interview. But after he goes over my research, he agrees, and I drive to his house in Marble Hill, a rural area north of Atlanta. Kent is ready for me. He's arranged all the documents I gave him on his dining room table, along with a small pad where he's written down notes. He's friendly, but when I turn on the recorder, the room feels a little tense. So you were kind of nervous about being misrepresented in this story. I was curious, would you want to talk about that at all? Well, I I just think that there's always a risk by association. I think most people understand that none of us are our ancestors. If we go far enough back, we all have ancestors that did things good and bad. Kent says he knew his grandfather. Roper lived until he was 90. They would talk about his service in the First World War and his career in law enforcement and, eventually, the Klan. Kent says his grandfather only joined to get ahead in politics. He remembers asking about the violence the hate group is known for. And I said, you know, when you were head of the KKK, which was actually, I think he was a Grand Imperial Wizard, maybe a total of a year to 18 months, so it wasn't very long. He said that he never condoned lynching. And newspapers report him as saying that, you know, we will consider our political activism for white supremacy, but we will not, you know, condone violence. I saw an article where Roper said the Klan did not condone violence. But I tell Kent about another article, one where the Klan was accused of bombing the homes of black families in Atlanta. Roper was in charge then. Kent says his grandfather blamed that kind of violence on fringe members. He compares his grandfather to Georgia Governor Eugene Talmadge. He was a Klan sympathizer who, by the way, fought to keep black people from voting. Now, there's no question their politics was segregationist. Uh, It was white supremacist. Um, They were staunchly anti-communist. Most of the things that, that I understood about them and about that era were political things. So what does Kent make of Thomas Finch's case then? He goes through the commission's report point by point. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of detail, but... He says he agrees with the commission that there are aspects of the case that seem off, like the police arresting Thomas at 3 a.m. While the commission saw all this as a police-sponsored lynching, Kent comes to a very different conclusion. What I read into this event is that the police 
were concerned that there was going to be a lynching or some kind of activity either by the accuser's family or some racist group in town. In other words, Kent believes his grandfather was trying to protect Thomas Finch from a mob, not conspiring with one. Then he thinks Thomas tried to escape and reached for his grandfather's gun. This is what the officers claimed at the time. Still, Kent says he can totally see why others might side with the commission's account. I tell him, yeah. For a lot of people, right, if they hear that there was a case that a, from the 1930s that a civil rights group said was probably a lynching, and then they hear that the shooter involved was later the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the South, they're probably going to feel pretty certain about what happened, that it was a lynching, right? I mean, would you tell those people that they're wrong? Well, I think that, I, I think all of us have to be honest and say we're viewing the world through certain filters. Um, so I would say to them, you know, I'm viewing this through as much truth as I can find, which there's a lot of missing pieces, uh, and, and through the filters of, of a man I knew. The only thing I can say truthfully is I don't know what really happened, and I don't think we're ever going to really know what happened. Thomas Finch died more than 80 years ago. None of the witnesses are alive. Still, there's one more person I'm interested in, Ozella Smith. She's the white woman who told police that Thomas Finch raped her. I have a little trouble tracking her after the case. She died in the 1980s with a different first name. I managed to locate her niece, Dolores Sharp. She agrees to meet me at a library near her home in Peachtree City, south of Atlanta. Like Kent Giles, Dolores is cautious. We spend a couple of hours going over documents before she's okay to talk on the record. Dolores says she grew up around her aunt. She saw her any time she went over to her grandma's house. Ozella Smith lived there. She never married. When did you first hear the story that I called you about? Oh, I was a young girl when um, I was told that my aunt was raped by a black person at the hospital. Uh, I never really knew a lot of details, and because it was taboo to talk about, you didn't bring it up, and and I I don't know why I I, I was mature in a sense that I felt like maybe it was something that I I didn't need to plunder into. She says the assault was just too painful for her family to talk about. Oh, I think it was maybe a major uh, event that permanently scarred the heart and the mind of uh, the members that were closest to my aunt. I can hear the conviction in her voice when she talks about this family history. So I'm not surprised when Dolores is disturbed when she reads the commission's conclusion that Thomas Finch was wrongfully accused. The implication is that her aunt lied about the assault. When you hear something contrary to what you grew up believing, you might even go on a defense of that, or you might take the attitude that she was just completely discarded, that her, what happened to her was completely irrelevant. I have a lot more questions for Dolores, but we're interrupted. A Peachtree City librarian motions through the glass of the study room. Our time is up. Dolores asks me if we can reschedule. 
But weeks go by, and she never does agree to another meeting. This isn't what I expected to hear from the other families. Somehow, after all my research, I thought there might be consensus on how we should look at Thomas's case. But there isn't. I talked to Katherine Meeks. She's a former African-American studies professor who now directs the Absalom Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta. I, I've realized that I was just so naive going into this that I, I was so surprised to have disagreement about something that mm-hmm. happened 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if we can't agree about that, like, what can we agree, agree about we don't now? We agree about the history. We don't agree about the written history of the United States. Professor Meek says lynching in particular is a point of shame. That's one piece of the history that we've tried the hardest to ignore. We'll talk about slavery. We'll talk about Jim Crow. We'll talk about Reconstruction. But we don't really want to talk about lynching. Many places in Georgia still don't want to talk about lynchings, even though there were more lynchings here than in any other state except Mississippi. There are exceptions. A couple of years ago, I drove out to a small city called LaGrange, where the police chief had called a community meeting. 200 people crowded into a Methodist church. Chief Lou Deckmar spoke about Austin Calloway, who was killed in 1940 when a mob stormed the city jail. I sincerely regret and denounced the role our police department played in Austin's lynching, both through our action and our inaction. And for that, I'm profoundly sorry. It should never have happened. His comments received a standing ovation and drew national attention. But in Thomas Finch's case, it doesn't seem like authorities have any plans to apologize. I let the city of Atlanta and the police department know about what I found. I sent emails, even registered letters. Would they acknowledge his case as a lynching? Atlanta's police chief, Erica Shields, wouldn't talk to me. The office of Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms only gave a short written statement. It says the city has no official record of Thomas's case, but there is no denying that Atlanta, quote, still wears scars from the deep wounds inflicted during that dark chapter of history. And this surprises me, too. Atlanta's very different now. The all-white power structure is gone. It's had black mayors for decades, and the police force is majority black. But when it comes to Thomas Finch's case, they still have little to say. I ask Catherine Meeks about this. Well, I I just think it's denial of the history. I think it's they they don't want to take responsibility. They may even be worried that if they say something, they will be admitting to some culpability that might leave them in legal trouble. Meek says it doesn't matter if the people in power have changed. The institutions still need to recognize what happened. It's not as important for me for somebody to go stand up in front of a microphone and say, I'm sorry, as it is for them to really be awake, to really understand and to really do something. But if you're doing all of that, you probably don't mind saying you're sorry. For now, the most public acknowledgement of Thomas Finch's death is still in another state, the place where I first came across his name, the Memorial for Lynching Victims in Montgomery, Alabama. Several months after we first met, I joined Joyce at the memorial. She's on a civil rights tour with a couple of friends. We walked down into the lower level of the main pavilion, past a wall with streaming water. Hundreds of steel columns shaped like coffins are hanging above us. They're organized by the counties where the lynchings happened. Joyce is moving quickly. She seems anxious, almost excited. We find the column that includes Atlanta, 
It's so high above us that Joyce strains to make out the names of the victims etched on the column. Can you see it? I really can't. And actually, that might be good because I don't want to start crying. <laughs> so my photographer takes a picture of Thomas's name and enlarges it on the screen of his camera. So just to give you context, uh-huh. it's the bottom right here. Uh-huh. Thomas Finch. She and her friend stare at the image. Then Joyce approaches me. I'm really reserved most of the time when I hold my feelings in. I never knew my uncle, but I can pass this along to my family members, the ones who are still alive, and to my grandkids. And she pauses, like she's taking in what's around her. Her uncle's name among more than 4,000 other African Americans who were lynched in this country. I mean, this is history. I mean, he's memorialized. I mean, he's not forgotten. I didn't even know him. You know, really didn't. But it's important. We step outside the pavilion and see another set of the columns lined up on the ground. They're duplicates. The people behind the memorial want to send them to the counties where the lynchings happened, sort of like historical markers. In Atlanta, there's a private group working to make that happen. It would finally bring Thomas Finch public recognition in the city where he was killed more than 80 years ago. After spending all this time on his case, I can't say how that effort will be received. Stephanie Stokes is a reporter with public radio station WABE. Her story was edited by David Lewis, investigations editor at WNYC, and produced as a part of a collaboration with APM Reports. Our editors this week were Michael Montgomery. And for our coronavirus coverage, Jen Chien with Taki Telenitas. They had help from Reveal's Emily Harris and Elizabeth Shogren. Special thanks to Polly Stryker of KQED, Cap Radio's Nick Miller, and Joanne Griffith with the California Collaborative Newsroom. Thanks also to Susanna Capilouto of WABE in Atlanta and Chris Worthington of APM Reports. That's the investigative documentary unit of American Public Media. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Zach McNeese, Najib Amini, and Amy Mustafa. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.